0: Punishment is different than discipline. Nothing is wasted, and a peaceful spirit is content. All this and more, as we continue our year with Solomon. I'm Philip Jackson, and this is the Married Now What podcast. Jesus, Remember last week, one of the things as we're as we're going through the book of Proverbs, it's like um, it's like looking at looking at scripture in this way, is a lot like looking at a gem, right? We're gonna, we see a lot of the same language about wisdom and folly and wisdom and foolishness, and it's like looking at things through a different nuance of the gem. And so even though there's similarities in the text, there are, um, there are different things, different nuances that are important that need to be drawn out. So even though we're going through some of the same material, it feels like um, there's different things that we can draw out of it. Um, another thing that I want you to be thinking about, we're going to start in verse 33 of chapter 14. So most people don't realize that uh, the, the chapter numbering and the verse numberings for the Bible didn't come until many centuries after the Bible was um, was compiled in the canon. And so, like for instance, the the Old Testament, uh, the verses and the and the chapters were added around 8900, somewhere around there, and the New Testament was around the 1200s for the for um, the New Testament writings. So the numberings and the chapter separations are not divinely inspired. That's something I haven't learned until my adult years. So there, even though there are natural breaks in the text between chapters and verses, um, that doesn't necessarily mean in the original text that, that that's where the thought stops. And so we're going we're gonna to do the last several verses of chapter 14, and then the first four verses of 15 in the first section, um, and um, as you're studying God's Word, um, just have that in the back of your mind. You know, just because there's a chapter change or there's a verse that ends doesn't mean that the thought is complete or that we're moving on to a different subject. So it's important to, to understand that in context. So we're going to look at uh, a couple of different groupings of text here uh, at the end of chapter 14 and, and uh, all of chapter 15. So beginning in verse 33 of chapter 14 of Proverbs, it says, Wisdom rests in the heart of one who has understanding, but among fools it is made known. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. The king's favor is toward a servant who acts wisely, but his anger is toward him who acts shamefully. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge pleasant, but the mouth of fools sprouts foolishness. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but but perversion in it crushes the spirit. Okay, the first thing is, um, starting back up here at the top of verse 33, um, look at how uh, how the wise and the foolish are known. Right, We're looking at um, how righteousness is upheld with a gentle tongue in these first couple of verses, he says, Wisdom rests on the heart of the one who has understanding, but among fools it is made known. We've talked a lot in here about um, the mindset of a fool and the mindset of a wise person. And a lot of it comes down to, I've heard the definition, the difference between wisdom and knowledge is knowledge is knowing what to say, wisdom is knowing when to say it. And one of the defining characteristics of a wise person is that they know when to keep their mouth shut right? There's a, an adage that I picked up as a kid. I don't know where I got it, but um, I started to remember in my mind, when in doubt, shut your mouth, right? If I'm not sure what I should say, I should just be quiet. Um, and the the reality is for a wise person, um, they know when to open their lips and when to shut their mouth. Um, but a fool, like it says here in verse 33, that the fool is made known. Um, one of the ironies is that to a foolish person, they don't, Understand, they don't recognize that they are they're being foolish, and so they're like a blind for blind person, you know, stumbling around and running into things, and so they're they're completely oblivious to the reality that they have no understanding or perspective. So the wise and the and the foolish, God allows us to be um, to be shown in that way. So the root of wisdom, though, is um, an understanding, you know, proper perspective about the world and events, um, and. In verse thirty-three, it talks about individual individuality, but verse thirty-four, he moves to talk about things on a national level. In verse thirty-four, he says, "Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people." Um, see, the nature of fools is to broadcast their immaturity, right? They can't help but make a fool of themselves, and so there's um, there's this old adage that it's attributed to Abraham Lincoln or to Mark Twain or different um, thought, you know, different speakers over history, and um, the phrase goes, it's better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. And I thought, man, that is, that is very, that's, that's, that is on point. And um, especially in the case, so if this, is, if this is the nature of how things are, right? So a wise person is silent and they are observing what's happening in the world. They're educated and they know, what, they know what's going on. A foolish person is just like a bull in a china shop. They're just breaking things. If that's true on the individual level, that's also true on the international level, right? So a group of people, a community, or a nation is going to be known by whether they are wise or foolish. So what it says here that righteousness exalts a nation, uh, but sin is a disgrace to any people. This is similar to what Jesus pointed out in Matthew 23, where he was talking to the crowd and he's pointing out the hypocrisy of The pharisees and the scribes and he's talking about how they do all of their spiritual things out in the open there's a scene in the chosen this last this last season where this pharisee is standing in public and he's praying he's reciting this prayer over and over again out loud and these other pharisees are trying to talk to him and he just like keeps repeating the prayer louder and louder and louder and when they try to interrupt him he just puts up his finger like this and he just continues to do what he's doing and there's like this there's a a a poor person and she's, she, she finally just tells the guys who are trying to talk to her, he's going to be doing that all day. You might as well not even try. And so then a conversation moves over to, to her and the, uh, the other Pharisees. But Jesus said this in Matthew 23 about, uh, about these people who try to um, let their pride do the speaking for them. He says, Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Um, this leads to a simple truth that the path to influence is paved with self-sacrifice. Look at look at how this is this idea is that we this concept that we have the wise person who is content to be silent, but you have the fool who can't help but open his mouth. What that does is God God has a way of allowing us to be seen to magnify who we've let be the Lord of our life. So consider this, right? So if I let the world be um, my God. Be my driving force, God is going to allow me that choice and He's going to allow me to be known by that choice. And as a result, that means that my destruction is going to be put on display. But over here on the righteous side, being a righteous person, Jesus says that um, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In the same way that Philippians 2 talks about how Jesus was the ultimate example of a servant that he humbled himself and God has elevated him to the place of, of prominence in all of creation, the same thing is true for us. That if we submit ourselves in humility, God will exalt us. So, Because what he wants to do is he wants to put his kingdom on display. He wants to put his children on display because we have a message, the redemptive hope of the gospel. And so he is going to be ready to do that. The scribes and the Pharisees, they didn't, they didn't compute that because they were walking around in foolishness. Right, So this is the same thing that's true for uh, a nation, that the righteousness of a nation is going to be elevated because of the humility of those who live in it. Um, there is a, there's a great scene. There, there's an old show that used to be on TV called The Newsroom, I think is what it was called, and it had, um, oh gosh, what was his name? Jeff, um, the guy from Dumb and Dumber. Mm-hmm. Help me, what was his last name? it's not bridges it was uh, dead Daniels Jeff Daniels and he has this monologue in the very first episode where he talks about the greatness of America and one of the things that he points out in, in that scene it's, it's an incredible dialogue is he said that there used to be a day when we would we would do big things we would we would help the poor we would um, spread opportunity around the world and we wouldn't beat our chest you know, we live in a generation now that is defined by chest beating. And um, it is all about who is the smartest, who, who has the most facts, who can belittle the other person enough to where they can come out supposedly on top of the argument. And the reality is that simple, everyday humility is something that God exalts. And I think that's one of the reasons why God has given us um, the, 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 the status that we have in the world At least over the last 50 years and and um, we see that beginning to wane because righteousness exalts a nation but sin is a disgrace to every people right what we're seeing play out in our own national uh, position in the world is proof of this scripture right here that humility is the way to influence Um, and so the character of a nation it matters right those who rule they have a vested interest in the integrity of the people look at this next verse it says in verse 35, the king's favor is toward a servant who acts wisely, but his anger is toward him who acts shamefully. Why would the king care about his servant's righteousness? Why would he care about his servant's wisdom or foolishness? Because it's gonna, it's gonna show itself as evident in the national identity, right? Foolishness is something that needs to be taken seriously. And if we, and we, if we think that our, our leaders are the ones who get to determine our wisdom or our foolishness, we ourselves are fooling ourselves, because the reality is that our elected officials, our elected leaders are a reflection of the inward character of a nation. And so when we look around and we see the absence of leadership, either in Washington or Oklahoma City, it's not because um, we we have somehow lost our minds, it's because there has been a slow embracing of pride in our nation's heart, and what's happening is that's becoming reflective in our nation, in our, in our, in our government. So he says, the king's favors toward the servant who acts wisely. Um, in these first four verses of chapter 15, uh, he continues this idea. He says, uh, talking about this, this, this language about speaking and, and keeping silent, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Um, you guys have probably said this in your marriage. We said this just this last week as Lindsay and I were having a disagreement. It's not what you said, it's how you said it. right? It's a, this is a common response to harsh words in an argument. right? The, the, the pr- this proverb observes that we have a choice in how our disagreements play out. So as we're, as we're having dialogue, right? a person of wisdom, if the difference between wisdom and knowledge is knowing not what to say but when to say it. Sometimes the best thing to do is just shut your mouth, especially when it comes to your relationship with each other. Um, I got to read that this morning on the, on, the, on the heels of a disagreement Lindsay and I had yesterday, and that was not fun for my heart, but I had to do business with the Lord because of it. Um, but look at verse 2. He says, The tongue of the wise makes knowledge pleasant, but the mouth of the fools sprouts foolishness. Um, you know, one of the great things about Scripture and about having a scriptural perspective about life is that your words bring life to people. That when somebody comes to you with a question or with an uncertainty and you're able to give them God's word, what it does is God literally puts hope on your lips so that you're able to teach them in a way. And honestly, it's it's awesome because you take that truth that God has taught you and you transfer it to them and you see them start to walk in victory because of the truth. And what you see is you have the 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 divine privilege of being able to see someone walk in victory and you're just a spectator. All you did is put gas in the tank for them to be able to kick closer. Um, so the tongue of the wise makes knowledge pleasant. It's something that is enjoyable, right? But the mouth of fools, it spouts foolishness. Remember, they're destructive. But look at the accountability that comes in verse 3. It says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but but perversion in it crushes the spirit. You know, the wise are defined by their perspective and their discipline, right? We The, the wise walk with this perspective that they know that God is watching. And here here's what I want you to be thinking about. When we typically think about God watching us, we think about it in a negative connotation. Right? Well God's watching watching me so I don't want to do anything bad. Like would I be doing this if Jesus was sitting here next to me? But instead I want you to change your frame of thought. Instead of thinking, I don't want to do that because God's watching and I'm going to get in trouble. Instead look at this as an opportunity to to say you know what? God is watching, so I'm going to please him with my life. I'm going to please him with these decisions. I'm not, I'm not resenting him because he's not letting me do what I want. I'm looking for opportunities to bring my father joy. I'm, I'm looking for ways that I can bring him excitement and, and, and uh, the simple joy of seeing one of his children walk in holiness. This is something that is, is important for us because what's interesting is that as we change our perspective— what God does is he fills our heart with with total satisfaction. Because if all we do is we just define our relationship with God and we put it around the boundaries of our redemption of our sin, that's a huge part of our relationship with God, absolutely. But the reality is that the closer that we get to God, the more enjoyment we get from being with him and in his presence. So the more enjoyment we have in holiness and righteousness. And so as we think about God watching um, that he's watching in every place, the good and the evil. He's not just watching, checking off things on a clipboard, all the ways that we've messed up in a day. What he's doing is he's also saying, oh, yeah, do you see my, see my girl? Do you see my boy down there doing their thing? This is awesome. Hey, Gabriel, look at this. This is awesome. Think about what, what God did in the story of Job. The devil comes to see, G- comes to see God, and, and what does God say? Have you seen my boy Job? He's pretty awesome. God is watching, and he's not just sitting there with a lightning bolt ready to throw it down. And notice verse 4 where he says, The soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it crushes the spirit. We've talked about, we haven't gotten to this chapter yet, Proverbs eighteen twenty one, 21. Um, one of my favorite Proverbs in the whole book, it says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. One of the most incredible things that God has given us is the ability to speak. Consider this. How did God make everything? By the spoken word. In the same way that God brings life through his spoken word, he's given us the same divine privilege to speak life. The words that we say, a simple greeting, a simple word of encouragement, it has the way it has a way of bringing life into someone's soul when they're discouraged or when they're down, or maybe when they're just trying to shake off the rust from a from a long weekend or a long week of work, and they just need someone to smile at them. The reality is that our words, they matter. They're a gift. And how we store up in our heart what we're supposed to say, it matters, right? We keep our hearts with all diligence because out of it spring all the issues of our life, Proverbs 4.23. So this this act of disciplining our, our words and what we say is important because it's either going to bring... Um, life to someone or it's going to bring death to someone. Um, so foolishness and wisdom has a real practical application. So moving on to the next section of scripture, we're going to talk about the, the importance of having a teachable spirit, right? So if, if uh, this language and this accountability and wisdom is important, that means that our mindset matters too. Continuing in verse 5 of chapter 15, he says, a fool rejects his father's discipline, but he who complies with rebuke is sensible. Great wealth is in the house of the righteous, But trouble is in the income of the wicked. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, but the hearts of fools are not so. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves the one who pursues righteousness. There is severe punishment for one who abandons the way. One who hates a rebuke will die. Sheol and uh, Abaddon lie open for the Lord. Uh, but much more the hearts of mankind. A scoffer does not love one who rebukes him, but will not go to the wise. So there's some consequences here for accepting or rejecting instruction. That's one of the, the key elements. You remember that a wise person is one who, not only are they defined by disciplining their mouth, but they're also defined by having a teachable spirit. Having a, a humility implies that I am not the master of everything. I don't am not an expert. And so there's always ways for me to learn. There's always ways for me to grow. And that is that is the fertile soil, soil that God uses to change our lives. So um, look at verse 5. He says, A fool rejects his father's discipline, but he who complies with rebuke is sensible. Um, there's this imagery again that we've seen in Proverbs already about a father and a son or father and a child, uh, their relationship. And... and the, the child has to be um, willing to learn. There's a difference here. I want you to think about this. The difference between punishment and discipline. There is a very stark difference between the two, right? And everything is determined by the heart of the person receiving both. So discipline is something that is received by someone with a teachable spirit. Discipline is a correction away from something that is destructive to something that is going to be constructive. So if a child is going to do something that's going to hurt themselves, if they're running around with a steak knife in the kitchen, you mamas are going to grab that knife, right? If that, if that baby's about to touch a hot burning wood stove, you're going to stop them because you know that this is going to hurt them. And, and they may be upset that you took their shiny object or you won't let them do what they want to do. But that discipline protects them from something that is destructive. Now, punishment is different. Punishment is rooted in a heart that is set to pride. Punishment is something that is is rooted in a rebellious spirit. And we see that we we will never get to the place to where we we have an absence of, of both. Because we as human beings are naturally, we are selfish and we are um, self-centered and we are hard-headed. And there are things that we don't want to give up because we just want to do things our way. And so what that means is that that discipline comes until our heart becomes rebellious, and then punishment comes. That's something that is very, very dangerous for us. Right? Um, so he's talking about this in, um, in this language about um, receiving instructions. right? He says, The fool rejects his father's discipline, but the one that complies with rebuke is sensible. In other words, it makes sense. Right, look at verse 6. He says great wealth is in the house of the righteous, but troubles in the income of the is the income of the wicked. Um, you know, there are uh, practical benefits for obeying God's word, but the greatest thing about this is that we have the opportunity to walk with God. That's our true our true wealth, but he is actually talking about real physical wealth here. You know, think about it. A a fool doesn't have any concept of the world, and so they walk around bumping into things, and they blame their their troubles on other people. But they're the ones who are really causing all the destruction. But a wise person is circumspect. They know what's true and what's not true, what's real and what's not real, and so they make decisions based on a teachable spirit. And so they're able to adapt to losses. They're able to adapt to to realities of the economy. And so there is real practical wealth gain that comes from righteous living. But that's not all of it. Look at what he says here in verse 8. He says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. Going back to this idea of a heart that's, that, is, that is rooted in rebellion and a heart that is rooted in humility, a teachable spirit, right? The, the hard, proud spirit says, Okay, well, I'm going to give God what he wants because he's demanded it, so I'm going to give him the bare minimum, and so I'm going to give him my sacrifice. I think about what Samuel told King Saul. To obey is better than sacrifice. The reality is, is that God doesn't want our stuff. He doesn't want us to be, um, to be, to be holding back our heart whenever we give Him what He's asked for. He wants the heart. That's the whole point. And what He's saying here is the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. It is, it is uh, putrid to Him. It's disgusting because He. That's not what He wants. It's the difference between the sacrifice of Cain and the sacrifice of Abel. But he says the prayer of the upright is his delight, and notice it's not just the sacrifice that's an abomination, but also the way of the wicked is an abomination. Look at verse nine. He says the way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves the one who pursues righteousness. It's this idea of someone who is humble, who wants to be, who is teachable, right? If you can be anything, be teachable, because that's where you can find the Lord. Um, but look at the sac- look at look at the the the, the product of punishment. Okay, so we move away from discipline. Hebrews tells us that the, who the Lord loves, he disciplines. Um, but look at punishment. Verse 10, he says, "This is severe punish- There is severe punishment for one who abandons the way. One who hates a rebuke will die. Sheol and Abaddon lie openly before the Lord. How much more the hearts of mankind. Let me talk about that for a second. Sheol is uh, the Old Testament Hebrew term for hell. Okay, Abaddon is a word for uh, a place of suffering. So what he's saying, this is, this is hell, essentially. He's saying that all of this, it, it's, like, it's like watching a car wreck happen. Think about this. So we have decisions in how we live our lives, right? And we know based on scripture what the end result is going to be, based on how we decide to live. We can either choose to live righteously and, and, and be teachable and put ourselves under the authority of God's word, or we can choose to live independent and do our own thing and live in foolishness. So God watches us make these decisions. So instead of looking at it from our perspective where we're trying to decide okay do I want to please God or not please God in my decisions think about it from his perspective that he sees two options. We have Sheol and Abaddon over here, we have hell and judgment over here because of punishment or we have righteousness through the grace of Jesus Christ and heaven over here. So God is watching us walk this path and making decisions on how we want to live. He says that this is, this is always in front of the Lord. He's how, he says, how much more the hearts of mankind... So think about this. We have the opportunity, the rare opportunity, to experience the... Oh my goodness... the the worst parts of life. Just like to those who are in Christ have a foretaste of heaven, we have, in essence, the first fruits of heaven, what scripture calls us, the appetizers of heaven by having fellowship with God's spirit here on earth. We also have the appetizers of hell. We also can experience the suffering and the hatred and the destruction of sin. We can experience that here on earth. Not to the same degree as hell, which is to its infinite degree. But we have the ability to do that here too. So he's saying, God is seeing this, this play out. We have two options which way we can go. He says, how much more the sons of men, as they, as they live out their lives and they experience this. You don't have to live very long to know that life is hard and life sucks sometimes. It just does. I went to two funerals this week, back to back, two days in a row. And I've been thinking about this. We we uh, we buried an old friend of, of ours on Friday. It's on the original construction crew of guys that I worked with when I was 16 years old. I worked with this guy for 11 years. And and what's interesting is he's, he's my first 20-year friend to die. And I heard the news about his death a couple of weeks ago, right before I was mowing the yard. And so I'm out there in my, with my thoughts, pushing the lawnmower around. And I began to think, you know, um, when you're young, sin is not that big of a deal. It doesn't seem like, yeah, I did some stuff. God's mad at me, so I'm going to tell him I'm sorry. But the older I get, the more I realize the weight of sin and the consequences of it because I know more people who die. I'm close to more people who die. And, and what I'm beginning to realize at 36 years young is that um, sin has real consequences, and we're, we get to watch it unfold in our lives the longer we live. Have you ever met those old folks that are like, you know what, I'm just really ready for heaven. I'm just kind of done. The reason why is because they're just tired of the, of the dumpster fire of life. That's the idea is here is that, is that God sees this unfolding in our lives and he's like, how much more? How much, how much more do I have to show you in order for you to see that the decisions that you make in your life are going to have a product? I love you. I want to be over here in the world of discipline in the world of life. I don't want you to be over here in the world of punishment where you're separated from me. That's not what I want for you. But look at verse 12. A scoffer does not love one who rebukes him. He will not go to the wise. That person who says, you know what, God, I see that you've given me this option, but I'm just going to turn my nose up and I'm going to walk the other way because I refuse to be a teachable person because I've decided that I'm going to be the God of my life. But notice how this continues here. In verse 13, he says, "A joyful heart makes a cheerful face. But when the heart is sad, the spirit is broken. The mind of the intelligent seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feeds on foolishness. All the days of the all the days of the needy are bad, but a cheerful heart is a, at continual rest, our continual feast. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with treasure. Better is a portion of vegetables" where there is love than a fattened ox served with hatred. A hot-tempered person stirs up strife, but, a slow, but the slow to anger calms a dispute. The way of the lazy one is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. So we have this, let's talk about this idea of living in um, discipline, living, being the one who has a teachable heart, right? The mindset of a child of God is one who embraces the simple discipline, and, and they embrace it fully, right? Nothing's wasted. So look at, we're going to go through these verses. There's some contrast here about um, the person who receives discipline and the person who receives punishment. Uh, so let's start with the person who receives discipline. They experience these things, right? They experience a broken spirit that's constructive towards godliness. Verse 13 says that they, they have a sensitivity to their relationship to God. Verse 14 says that they desire to know the truth. Verse fifteen says that the, that an abundance of God's blessings is in their life. Verses sixteen and seventeen say that peace and contentment and love are parts of their life. Verse eighteen that influence uh, they have influence to stop a fight, uh, and verse nineteen that they have protection and security in life. These are the promises to the person who is who set their mind to being obedient, to being to being humble, to being teachable. But on the other side of that the person who receives punishment is someone who receives these things. Verse 13, a broken spirit or an absence of hope. Verse 14, an inability to escape foolishness. Verse 15, there are bad days. Um, this literally means afflicted with poverty. So the the word that's used here in verse 15 about um, that all the days of the needy are bad, the, it's used typically in the context of a widow. Now in the Old Testament context, a widow was someone who had no way to pay their bills. Like they literally were destitute. And so the law was written to where if you were a widow or if you were an orphan, when people would harvest their fields, they on purpose, they would leave parts of the field unharvested for you to be able to come back and gain some, get some food. So they would leave the corners of the fields, unharvested, and as the workers would come and they would bundle up the grain, there would be loose stalks of grain around the field, and it was actually against the Mosaic law for them to go back through and collect all those small little pieces, because that was for the widows and the orphans. The idea here is that the person who is who is rebellious, who is living under punishment, that they are not just needy, they are desperate. They walk around in desperation. And as a result the reason that what happens is that they, in turn, are always insecure. And so they're always combative, right? We're back to this fool who always is ready to fight, ready to bow up, ready to throw their knuckles around because they have to prove something to somebody because they're not finding their worth in something that is true. Like the Lord, they're finding their worth in themselves, which in and of itself, scripture tells us, is not good. But the heart of man is desperately wicked and no one can know it. It takes the Lord to draw out the goodness of a person in verse 16, it says that in spite of their treasure, they have no rest. And in verse 17, it says that they live a life of hatred. In verse 18, the one who's punished is the one who, who lacks self-control and they have recurring conflict. In verse 19, that they have difficulty and obstruction in life. The imagery here in verse 19, that the lazy is the one who uh, is like, is, has a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. Let me explain that for a second. The, the lazy one is a person, so the imagery here is being able to travel, right? So a lazy person is one who always has um, obstacles in the way. There's always something coming up. I don't know why. I can't get ahead. It's like they're, they're trying to get on a, on a path, and they're trying to move in a direction, but they keep coming up against things that they have to deal with. But the wise, though, they're on the path that's like a highway, a well-groomed, well-disciplined road. That they can walk freely. Um, we talked a little bit last week about resources, about financial resources, and the reality is that you know there there is a lie in our culture, in our Christian culture, that says that I can't serve God until I'm retired. I can't serve God until I have the financial freedom to serve God. But that's directly con- con- uh, conflicting with Matthew chapter six, where Jesus says, "I know you need food. I know you need a place to stay. I know you need clothes. Seek me first, and all these things will be added to you." In other words. We have financial freedom right now to be obedient. God's word literally says, I will give you whatever you need to take care of your needs. All you got to worry about is being faithful to me and and obeying me. That's it. That's all you got to worry about. This idea that somehow when I'm retired, then I'll be able to give God my whole heart and serve him. The reality is, is that the lie that Satan has taught us is that we have more time and we don't. The time is now for us to be these kinds of people because this is what God's called us to, that the path of the upright is a highway. Look at these last uh, nine verses here, starting in verse 20. So moving into consequences of righteousness and wickedness, he says uh, in the first uh, four verses here, starting in verse 20, he says, A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish man despises his mother. Foolishness is joy to one who lacks sense, but a person of understanding walks straight. Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. A person has joy in an apt answer. And how delightful is a timely word. A couple of things in these verses. Um, there's a common phrase, it's not put this way in Proverbs, but I, I love the way that it uh, is kind of shared in our generation that we should never stop learning. Right? This is a common thing. This is true for all of us. What There is, there is a very... We see if this cycle sounds familiar to you guys. You work hard through high school, graduate high school, work hard through college. You might play a little bit, but you get through college and you get your degree. And then you're like, oh, great, fine, awesome. Now I don't have to read ever again in my life. And so you go to work, you get the job, and you blink, and it's been five years. You're like, oh, man, wow, we really need to start a family. Oh, and you blink again. It's been another five years. Like for some, For some of us, it's like, Holy cow! That was a really big decision. We made that really quick, and then for others, it's like, okay, I'm ready to get on with this thing. And then it's like you blink another, and there's another ten years, and you blink, it's another ten years. Um, old people say that to us, said that said that to us all the time when we got married, especially when we had our girls. Oh, it's gonna go fast. It's gonna go so fast. The days are long, but the years are short. You know. Amen. Amen. But this is this is a, a real thing. But. I want you to think about this aspect of your life, how you're sharpening the ax of your mind, how you are equipping yourself for obedience. That's one of the themes of, of, of Proverbs, that we should always be someone who's learning. We should always be someone who is challenging ourselves, should be doing something new. My friend Jeff, who passed away two weeks ago, he was, um, th- he was a redneck, I'm telling you. He lived in a teepee in Arkansas for 10 years. 10 years, he missed the entire decade of the 70s. This, this dude was, was a trip. And you know what? He devoured books. He could tell you about every kind of bird and plant and bug and things outside. He could tell you about history. He could tell you about economics. He could tell you about any, I mean, he was, I remember several years ago he was in his late fifties and he was, he had just decided he was going to learn the violin. Um, He was a testament to this idea to always be a student. You know, God has given you a great mind, and he's, he's He's equipped you for a specific purpose. And if you let that go, if you don't use it, you're burying a talent. You're burying something that God has given you on purpose. And that, that intellect is meant to be shared with the world. So being a perpetual student, he's talking about here, a wise son makes his father glad. Um... This is not just a our heavenly father, but this is also our earthly fathers, right? Um, being someone who's always learning, that you're going to enrich and you're gonna you're the lives of other people and your family, and you're going to um, excel in the things that you do. Being a person who never never quits learning will always give you opportunity. In verse twenty-two, it also says that a foolish man um, despises his mother. In other words, the foolish man despises this responsibility to be a perpetual student. And they and honestly. Um, they don't care about others. They're an idiot, right? And they, they are frustrated by their lack of progress. But notice in verse 22, or verse 21, it says, foolishness is joy to the one who lacks sense, but a person of understanding walks straight. In verse 22, he says, without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. Counsel and biblical advice are not just good practices, they're scriptural. So I know that that, I'm not trying to add a bunch of stuff onto your life, but I want you to be thinking about priorities, right? Do you have people in your life that you're going to get good, godly scriptural counsel? I was talking to a young adult this week, and they were asking me about a situation with a coworker. And there was emotions flaring, and there was all kinds of things going back and forth. And they asked me, they said, what do I do about the situation? Do I go and, and, uh, you know, talk to my supervisor because they're being uh, emotional? And... So I started asking questions. I said, okay, so when this other person is going through a career change in their life and they're trying to navigate some things, I said, have they asked counsel about that life change? Have they found confirmation in Scripture that this is what God wants them to do? And the answer was no and no. I said, okay, all right. Emotions are great. They're awesome to tell us that something's wrong, but we always have to test them to Scripture. Always have to test them to Scripture. Your emotions are awesome. They will tell you great things about life, great observations, but the reality is they're rooted in a sinful, wicked heart. And so you always have to test those emotions with scripture. And so when it comes to getting counsel and making decisions about your life, godly scriptural counsel is biblical. It's something that is incredibly important, right? Don't just go out there and make decisions about your life without asking someone who's, who can give you good counsel. Look at verse 23. Verse 23 says, A person has joy in an apt answer and how delightful is a timely word. This goes back up to this idea of speaking life into people and that uh, that it's important because God's word brings life, right? Godly wisdom brings life. Verse 24 is a hinge passage. It's a Janus passage. He says, The path of life leads upward for the wise so that he may keep away from Sheol below. Again, we're talking about hell. The most tangible way that godly wisdom helps us is to avoid sin and hell, right? There's a practical benefit for applying it to our lives. There's prosperity, education, joy, satisfaction. All these things are real when we apply ourselves to godliness, right? But the most significant way godly wisdom helps us is that it opens our eyes to see God. So notice these next couple of verses. Verse 25. The Lord will tear down the house of the proud, but he will set the boundary of the widow, Evil plans are an abomination to the Lord, but pleasant words are pure. He who profits illicitly troubles his own house, but he who hates bribes will live. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. The Lord takes rebellion and the destruction of his creation very seriously. Consider this. God makes the entire world. He makes the plants and the animals, and he has this this magnificent creation. And he says, "Okay, now I need a crown." So he fashions man out of the, out of the earth. Notice he doesn't speak him into existence like the rest. He pulls him out of creation. He molds him himself, and he breathes his life into him, and his spirit indwells the man. Man is his crown achievement of creation. And then he looks at he looks at man in the garden alone. And he says, "You know." This is not good. We need something else. The crown needs a jewel. And so he calls the man to fall asleep, and he pulls a rib out of his side, and he fashions for him a helper, an easer, someone of equal strength and power, of different skill sets to work with him as he manages and as he brings the creation into submission. And as that is broken because of sin... God begins to see these creations begin to destroy each other and so as creation begins to unfold as the story begins to unfold he sees mankind and the wickedness of our hearts start to tear creation apart. We see this on display every single day in the culture around us and in the international culture that that people are wicked. God takes that seriously he takes that incredibly seriously and so he is personally offended. So, look at verse 25. He says, The Lord will tear down the house of the proud, but he will set the boundary for the widow. The imagery here is talking about how the proud have declared war on heaven. James 4 talks about this. He says, That God resists the proud. He sends the armies of heaven against the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. There's the teachable person, and there's the non teachable person, the stiff neck and the submissive person. This is an image here that he's going to tear down the house of the proud. The language here talking about the widow in verse 25, uh, this is talking about, uh, this, she's, she's just a, an image bearer for those that are um, vulnerable and unprotected. They're helpless. In verse 26, the evil plans that are abomination to the Lord, these are war plans against heaven. Prideful plans are war plans against heaven. And guess what? They get met with war. What's the product of war? It's death, destruction, annihilation. This is the product of war. So when we make plans that aren't biblical, when we, plans, we make plans that aren't, that aren't godly, guess what? We are declaring war on heaven. The trouble that comes uh, on those who make these kinds of plans comes through confusion, like foolishness, and punishment and judgment. But the heart, look at the heart. Verse 28, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. The heart will always express itself somehow. Jesus said that it's out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. What you have inside is going to come out. It's going to come out through your words. It's going to come out through your actions, through your habits. That's why protecting our heart is so important. He says, The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. This is something that we are called to do, that we, are, that we should be slow with our words, and we should be contemplative, and we should be uh, policing ourselves and making sure that we are not undermining the, the integrity of the gospel. But the wicked, the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. The wicked can't help themselves. They are naturally bent towards destruction. But notice how this finishes in verse 29. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Going back to this idea that the Lord is always overseeing the affairs of men, he is going to give either discipline or he's going to give punishment, one of the two. This is true for our lives. We are going to receive either discipline or we're going to receive punishment. But here's the tricky part. Is that we get to decide what we receive. And the way that we get to decide that is when we answer the question, am I going to be a teachable person, or am I going to be a defiant person? So this is our choice. Do we want to build our families to be places that are humble and teachable, or do we want to build our homes to where they are independent and strong and mighty and be punished? That's the choice in front of us today. So I want to encourage you in this, as you're you're thinking about your families, as you're thinking about your marriages, your relationship with each other, as you're navigating difficulties and disagreements and arguments with each other, as you're trying to figure out what to do with different seasons of life and different priorities, the best way to navigate these things is to be teachable. Because if you're teachable, That comes with grace. And if you don't have it, it's going to be impossible to have a good marriage or a good family. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Married Now What Podcast is a ministry of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It is meant to be a resource for in-depth Bible study for couples striving to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org. Come alive. Our God will not be-